actually will tie in well to what I was going to do. Because you know what I always really liked in podcasts is when it just fades into a conversation that's already happening and you feel like you're dropping in on them in the middle of something. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah, sure. That's always fun, right? Oh, hey, guys. Welcome to Blast Zone. Emergency bonus episode alert. Emergency bonus episode alert. We are here. We're talking Dune, the 2021 Denis Villeneuve Dune. And we are joined, of course, by our Dune expert, our Dune spurt, Michael Tannenbaum, <laughs> actor, writer, comedian, overall great man who joined us to discuss David Lynch's failed attempt to adapt <laughs> this book into a film. So, Michael, thanks so much for joining us to talk about the new movie. Thanks so much. So much. Oh, oh that was oh, wow. Thanks so much for having me again. I didn't take my spice this morning, and that's why that happened. It's no good when you do that. Yeah, you need the spice. It's great to have you back. We've been prepping for this for a little while now, and now here we are. We're getting ready to talk Dune. It's very exciting. Between our first episode and this episode, I read the book Dune. Just the first one. I didn't get into the sequels yet, but I have plans to. I've been cool. immersing myself in Dune lore. We're going to get deep into spoilers, by the way. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, if you're one of the few people in America, it seems like that hasn't checked out Dune, you may want to go watch it and come back to us in seven hours when the movie's over. Because it's a long movie. Yeah. For a part one of two, it's quite lengthy. That's the other reason we need everyone to watch it, because we need to get that sequel greenlit. Oh, it's done. It's it's greenlit. Is it done? Oh, yeah. It's happening. They announced that it's made just over 300 million box office worldwide wow. as of this recording which is great for a pandemic movie. And I guess the HBO Max numbers were very impressive. So they know people are into it. And just if you're online at all, especially on like Twitter, you could tell it was going to be a thing just by the number of memes that came out about Dune. The people love Timothy Chalamet. I think that's great. He's our new boy wonder. All hail our new leading man of Hollywood, I guess. Yeah, right. The, the boy Messiah. He's hella likable. He's a good actor. He's got charisma. He hits all the right beats as Paul in this movie. Timmy's here to stay. He's going to be a force. We just need him to drop out of that Wonka movie because that seems like it's going to be real bad. <laughs> I think George Clooney once talked about when picking films that he does one for them and one for me. And I think that's Timmy's one for him. And I think we just have to accept that sometimes you just got to do one for you. And I hope he's having fun because I'm not excited for that film. No, I'm probably not going to see it unless I have to for this podcast. I not, hope he enjoys it. Yeah, as long as he's having fun. <laughs> I don't know fun. who else will. Spread your wings, Timmy. But then get on filming the Dune sequel because we were promised it in 2023 is the word. I assume they left all the sets built and everything so they don't have to go back and start from scratch again because this movie seems like a hefty production. You could just tell that they dropped a pretty penny on this movie. Man, this movie is majestic. It looks incredible. I don't know what's a set and what's CGI because it's pretty darn smooth in this movie, but it all looks amazing. The term scale gets tossed around a lot when talking about movies. But I think with this one, I would recommend to anyone listening to that. Yes, this is one worth seeing on the big screen. I think the director made a little coy joke about seeing it on your TV is the same as using a speedboat in your bathtub. Yes, he did make that reference. Yes. It's a good yeah. metaphor. A tad hyperbolic. But no, I think this one truly earned the right to leave your home for, so to speak. So you did catch us in a theater, Michael? I did. Fun personal life fact. I have moved from the Big Apple to, I assume it's called the Big Orange or maybe the Big <laughs> Lemon, but that's what Los Angeles has to work on. It has to come up with a good nickname for- well, it's the City of Angels, but not that's not fruit nah, related. No, that's not so. fruit related. No, I can't accept yeah. that. The little, little strawberry. The little, oh, that's nice. I do like a good Aww. strawberry. But yeah, we, we drove across the country to get our dog across because you can't bring emotional support animals on air airlines anymore because wow. of people like us who called our dog an emotional support animal only for the purpose of getting it on the flight. 
So <laughs> since that was taken away, we drove across the country. And while we were in Youngstown, Ohio, highly recommend it. Beautiful uh, Youngstown. Beautiful. It was great. Great barbecue there. We saw Dune there. Oh, fantastic. So that was like a little road trip excursion you guys went on. I also saw it in a theater. Ian, I believe you watched that on a Game Boy Advance. Is that correct? Yeah, that and on my Fitbit, I can stream stuff to my <laughs> Your Fitbit watch? Yeah. No, I watched it on a Mac laptop with a retina display held very close to my face and some powerful headphones. And then I watched it on a new television that I just got, which is big. And I sat close to that too. So I'm doing right. my best to simulate the theater experience at home with what I got. Denis might give you a pass for the TV, but if you only watched on your laptop, I think he was going to come to your house and hit you in the head with a sack of nickels. He was going to come and motorboat my shower or whatever the metaphor is. I think that metaphor got lost somewhere <laughs> along the way, but yes. So let's get into it. This movie, many years coming. I mean, it's been done and in the can for well over a year now, right? Because the original release date was last October. So okay. it's a full year after we were originally promised Dune. Did you guys think it was worth the wait? Short answer, yes. <laughs> it wasn't confusing, which I know sounds like a slight, but I don't mean that in a slight in any way. The source material is over a thousand pages, incredibly complicated. And I went with someone who had no real knowledge, just a few sparse things they knew about Dune, and they loved it, cool. understood everything, even little things, even if they didn't have the language to identify. The Mentat, for example, the person I saw it with didn't know because they didn't address it as Mentats, but even from those little well-crafted moments knew, oh, that person's a human computer. And that was a theme throughout the entire film that these well-crafted moments to show, not tell us, a very complicated world. I don't think that's a slight at all. The main issue I had with Lynch's Dune is that it was very hard to understand what the hell was going on most of the time. And my first note is that you know who everybody in this movie is, what they want, why they want it, pretty quickly without the need for these long monologues at the camera. And that's a huge achievement in and of itself for a story like this. And he achieves it in a few different ways. Like Paul's little projector homework that he has is, is a good uh -huh. way to get us information without just having someone tell it to us because he's learning along with us. So it feels more natural and worked into the story. But yeah, it's no small thing for this movie to be comprehensible to a newcomer to the Dune universe. It's really encouraging how the buzz about this movie is that people who didn't know about it are really enjoying it. Obviously, it's doing well at the box office. And I can't tell. Like, I tried to tell. I am currently stuck at this meta remove, at this distance from the movie, where I can only see it through my double lenses that filter everything through the book, through my other experiences. And it's totally not the movie's fault. I can see that these scenes have these clear dramatic actions. Like you said, John, the characters are clear in what they want. They're responding to obvious motivations that are laid out very artfully. And my mind still won't accept what I'm seeing as the text. I go, oh, I'm not watching what's happening. This is a reference to what's really happening what's really happening is my version in my mind. So that's the tortured mental state that I'm stuck in and I'm going to keep re-watching it until I can break through that and see the movie from a different perspective. Not to say that I didn't love it. I loved it. I immersed myself in it on the first watch. Second watch, I was a little distracted. And still, there's so much to love, but I'm jonesing to try to get that experience. What is a newcomer experience when they come to this movie? But it's very heartening to hear that people are really liking it. Yeah, I think... That's just the plight of a Dooney. That's yeah. what we call Dune fans, right? Dunes. Dune heads. Dune heads, like cone heads. Like deadheads or fish okay. heads 
or my least favorite, Parrot Heads, which is the yeah. nickname for Jimmy Buffett fans. Oh, I know all too well the Jimmy Buffett fans, the bane of my <laughs> existence. <laughs> Where are you running into them, John? Did you work at a cheeseburger in Paradise restaurant? Or? I did not. I just spent a lot of time in Atlantic City and there's a Margaritaville uh, there. Oh. <laughs> but they have good nachos at Margaritaville, so yeah. it's not without its good merits. He seems like a nice guy. I wonder how much of that, though, is like personality he puts on to cash in on his like... Caribbean vibes? Yeah. Well, his faux Caribbean island vibe. I bet he's like a ruthless businessman underneath it all. And that's all just to put on. But Jimmy Buffett, not in this movie, sadly. The only movie I can recall seeing him in was Jurassic World. Oh, whoa. Yeah, a quick cameo in that one. Let's talk about the cast a little bit. First, just in general, and then how they match up to your idea of what the character should look like after reading the book. First off, we got to go Paul Atreides, the man, Timothy Chalamet. The best. The best. My dude. Good, right? <laughs> he looked the part I felt in the David Lynch one, Kyle McLaughlin. Yes. Right. So, excellent actor, a touch too old at the time, a little bit of a Dear Evan Hansen situation in the David Lynch <laughs> one, where there was no Dear Evan Hansen, that should just become a colloquialism, there was no Dear Evan Hansen casting when it came to Paul Atreides in this new one. I thought he was great. He needed to be the reluctant messiah figure. And also the sometimes sulky teenager, yeah. right? Like one of the first scenes in the movie is him at breakfast with his mom. And it's just like a mom and a teenage son having breakfast. And it's fun. They gave him that space to establish that relationship that way before things get really weird and bonkers later. It's easy to make a sulky teenager very annoying. But I don't think he yeah. ever veered into that. You can always kind of understand why he's bucking against his lot in life because it's a lot. He's going through quite a bit and there's prophecies and such being foretold. Interesting fact, though, I just looked it up. Timothy Chalamet, 25 years old. Kyle MacLachlan at the time of 1984's Dune, 25 years old. I think Kyle MacLachlan just wow. has permanent 37-year-old face. <laughs> he was totally he looks, 37 at He time. looks 37-year-old then, and he looks 37-year-old <laughs> now. Good for him. Yeah. It works in his favor now. But yeah, he definitely played a lot older in the role than uh, Chalamet does now. At 40, Chalamet's going to fall off the Robert Redford cliff and just look like a mummy. Right. The Robert a, Redford cliff? <laughs> Robert Redford got old real fast. Yeah, he was really young until he was super old one day. I think Beatty had that too going on a little bit. Well, plastic surgery has really improved in quality over the last few decades. <laughs> True. Allegedly. Allegedly. So we're all in favor of Timmy. I can mark that one down as a positive. Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto. Subdued. You love him because he's just a lovable guy. I love him as the dad. Seems like a good pops. Very serious guy. Doesn't joke around a lot. He was really good, but... He wasn't exciting. Was he supposed to be exciting? What did you guys think? I don't think so. I think he's supposed to be stoic and, and a little bit of uh, this is what a generic good leader looks like, which is why he has to fade out of that world because a new era is starting. But he, he represented like lukewarm bureaucracy to me, but in an admirable <laughs> way, like he's the good side of all these dealings, but he's still not exciting, but by design. That's some Derek Small style praise right there. He's <laughs> like lukewarm water. <laughs> you know, Oscar Isaac can bring it when he has to. I think it was a choice to play him that way and not a bug of the actor or the character is written. Yeah, it was very regal. Someone said stoic. That's probably the perfect description of how he played it. I thought he really killed the scene where, spoiler, he's comatose and about to die and he's paralyzed. And I'm sure maybe they just put a little drop of water in his eye or whatever those Hollywood tricksters do. But that got to me, the comatose, but with a single tear fall when he believes that his son and not wife, but concubine have been killed by mm -hmm. the Harkonnen. Yeah, that, that was a really, I just, I love that whole sequence in general. That was a fucking 
awesome moment. That tear really got me too. That's where you definitely love him for that part alone. And that tooth thing could have been so silly or overwrought, but I think they handled it with the right delicate hand because that's a way that people kill people, right? They just It's stop. a very old-timey trope like of spy movies to have like a cyanide capsule in your tooth. Yes, yeah. that they yeah. would hide something in the tooth. Yeah, that was in a recent Bond. Skyfaller, yeah. Yeah, except it doesn't work out for him. No, it doesn't. It, it goes bad. It doesn't usually dissolve the eyeballs of your enemies either. That was pretty nasty, that shit. One mouthful of gas and it torched everybody in that room. It was some serious stuff, but the Baron, <laughs> played by our friend Stellan Skarsgård, survives. Let's talk about the Baron because the Harkonnens in general and the Baron specifically was my biggest problem with Lynch's Dune because they were grotesque, but not in a way where you even want to watch them. They were just disgusting and Past repellent. The of- but here, I think they, they walk the line nicely where they're scary, but not cheesy or campy. Like they really did seem like a threatening, brutal force. Scary with a brain. Yes. There seem to be thought processes and conniving. A lot of feeling of schemes, of evil schemes, where in the Lynch one, it was akin to watching someone pull out someone else's fingernail. It was just so overtly grotesque and viscerally unappealing and probably offensive. But also in the book, the way they present the Harkonnen, he's a gay pedophile. So I think that for this movie, they wanted to just completely rip out that backstory from the book for all the right reasons and just really focus on the physical evil and the inner evil of the Baron. And I think, which Skarsgård was it? Stellan, the patriarch of the family. (laughs) He did a wonderful job. He's so good. Some of those scenes were real short. He had two lines and said a thing and you're like, oh, damn, I understand who the hell this whole scary guy is from just one little line. His deliveries were fantastic. I am vindicated because they pronounced the name of Dave Batista's character as Rabin and not Raban, which I was corrected during our 1984 episode <laughs> for pronouncing it as Rabin. But that's how they call him in this movie. I he's, didn't catch uh, that. I'm going back and watching again, man. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I was but calling him Duncan Idaho, but it was Duncan Idaho. Duncan I was, Idaho. Who I was knew? so embarrassed. <laughs> that's so weird. You got to expect Batista's going to have a bigger role in the second, only because, oh, yeah. first of all, we know what happens in the second half of the story, but also because you don't really cast an actor of that prestige at this point in his career and give him so little to do. He does not have really much to do in this movie. (laughs) Very much same with Gurney Halleck and Josh Brolin. One of the few actors that kind of hit wrong for me. I found him a little one note, a little flat. I usually stand for Brolin, especially when he's teamed up with our boy Denis, but not this time around. I don't know. He didn't really work for me. There's only two performances I singled out as being ones that I didn't particularly enjoy, and he's one of them. What did you guys think of Gurney in this movie? Just before we move on from Batista, he only had, again, a few lines to work with, but I thought his most powerful and effective moment was not even a spoken line when they've retaken the palace and he goes to the Atreides prisoners and he starts chopping their heads off Mm -hmm. and you just hear him grunt and it's all out of focus and obscured by fire and shot from a thousand yards away and it's fucking horrifying because his anger and and wrath is really palpable. I thought that was a great moment. Yes, agree 100%. Then I'll pick up the baton with Gurney. I think he'll have more meat to chew on in the next movie when it comes to dealing with the aftermath before that, he's really an assigned teacher to Paul. So he has very specific wants.
response that he wants from Paul. I thought there was a couple cutesy back and forths with him calling him old man. I thought they did that little moment once too many times. We get it. He has a nickname for him. Casting wise, that's basically what I picture Gurney Halleck to look like. An older military statesman kind of dude. Yeah, I think Brolin's in the wheelhouse for what you expect from that character. But where's his pug? I know he he really shouldn't (laughs) pop up yet, but. If we don't get a pug scene in, in part two, I'm going to be very upset. Part two is uh, going to be wall to wall pugs because they kept him out of the first right. act. Well, in the Lynch one, he doesn't have his pug until the very end. So it wouldn't make sense in this movie. <laughs> but now we need the pugs. Bring back the pugs. Hashtag. Yeah, I wanted more from Gurney, but I got just enough. Because like you said, when you see Josh Brolin in the Villeneuve movie, I'm ready for him to tear my head off. But I felt like his one key scene is, you're not in the mood. What the fuck are you talking about? Fighting is not about mood or whatever. I butchered that quote. But where he gets scary with Paul and says, I'm going to actually fucking kill you if you don't step up and defend yourself. And uh, I feel the tension in that. I felt like that was good enough. And I just wanted to see more of the fun stuff from him because he's such an interesting sort of poet warrior. And there was just only the barest glimpses of that interesting dual nature of this character. And hopefully we do see more in this next one. They dropped a nice little breadcrumb about his history with the Harkonnens, though. He mentions how brutal they are. And we know from the book that he was a captive of the Harkonnens as a youth. Right. And he escapes in a very interesting way. Yeah. He's supposed to have a prominent scar along his jaws. That's a sort of symbol of his Harkonnen captivity from the whips that they use. He had to keep drugging himself and he, he smuggles himself out of their palace in a big barrel of broken glass, I think, if I remember correctly. From oh, the book. Holy shit. I don't remember that. Part. Yeah. You're the new expert because you just read the book. <laughs> right. It's fresh in my mind. And yeah, he clearly holds a grudge for good reason. But I think that hopefully they expand on that and give him more of a backstory in part two. Speaking of Gurney, I loved how the sword, are they swords or light swords? But I loved how it looked in this movie, particularly versus the David Lynch one, because it was very corny in the David Lynch one. Yeah, it looks like a Dire Straits music video in the Lynch (laughs) one. Here though, yeah, it's easy, color-coded, demonstrating a blow that is blocked by the shields or a blow that gets through. It was very easy to follow and know where everyone stands or doesn't stand in the case of Duncan Idaho because that man gets stabbed roughly 75 times in the he, course he of this He goes red a lot of times. You're like, oh <laughs> shit, there's another knife going into him. Poor Momoa. He's the only one having fun in this movie though, right? Like his character is the only one to crack a joke or smile at yeah. a given point. So That's it's true. good to have that levity here because I don't know where, where we're going to get it in part two. Maybe some of the Fremen will crack some jokes because Bardem actually, I don't think he was yeah. supposed to be funny, but like his brusqueness is so off-putting that it almost makes you laugh in the first scene where he meets the Atreides family. Well, the spitting moment got an, I think, an accidental laugh or maybe an on-purpose laugh from my audience. That was not in the book, I believe. They don't do that as a ritual, the spitting thing. That doesn't ring a bell to me. That felt that they were trying to message to the audience in a show-don't-tell way what water means to the Fremen versus what it means to everyone else, that they treat it as holy as blood or it is life to them, your moisture, and to give it to someone was actually meant to be a way for him to show respect to the Duke. But it got a couple chuckles from my audience. Not sure if that was the intent. No, same same with my showing. There was a audible laughter in the theater at that moment. And also uh, I mentioned to Ian, so the theater was packed on a Friday afternoon. Two large groups of moviegoers, like four or five people each, got up and left before they even got to Arrakis. And there were murmurs of like, nothing's happening. Or it's so boring. Or I don't know what's going on as they were walking by me. (laughs) They said a lot of things your way. (laughs) Well, all right. So one of the groups was talking through the entire first hour of the movie. So I was very happy to see them go. And then the other group. 
was just murmuring as they left. But I was <laughs> shocked to see that because I really love the first hour of this movie. There's a lot of good table setting. It's very confidently paced. It's not rushing, but it doesn't feel slow. I don't know. Did you guys have any issues with the pacing early on? It was slow, but the visuals and spectacle of it all were so humongous and so rich and lush. You ever spend $15 for a movie and you find out how much that movie cost and you wonder where any of that money went? You didn't feel that. You were like, <laughs> no, this movie was expensive. And, oh, yeah. And, it was, and the money was used well. Like, whoa, look at that spaceship and look at the costumes and so some people don't deserve movies. That's what that means. Some people don't. That's what it comes down to. Yes. Yeah, These people did not deserve this movie. No. And, and that first hour does so much of the heavy lifting of, like we said later on, who everyone is and what they're doing and why. And if you don't have that first kind of contemplative hour where there's conversations happening and projector videos being watched, then none of that makes sense. So it is absolutely important to take your time and do that. Otherwise, you could just have Rebecca Ferguson give a long monologue to the camera to start the movie. But I don't think that's worked out so well in the past. Although it wasn't Lady Jessica. It was the princess. It was Prince, Princess Irulan. Who do, is she even in this movie? No, she wouldn't show up till the end because she's the emperor's daughter. We don't even know who the emperor might oh, be in this universe. Do we even know the casting of who's going to play the emperor of the universe? I don't think no, we I do. Don't, no, ooh, I don't think we do. That's a juicy. That'd be a juicy. That's going to be for fun. Who do I think have? Princess Irulan should be played by Alicia Witt, who played the little creepy baby in the first one, just as a, <laughs> a full circle moment. But I don't think just, I don't think that's going to happen. You turn this into Ghostbusters, John, with all kind of cameos. Oh, all too many cameos. Cast. Yeah, we just covered the 2016 Ghostbusters. <laughs> The entire cast shows up. Look up Neil Casey, though. He played the bad guy, and he is an incredible comedian, one of the best improvisers I've ever seen, and that is what I choose to focus on when it comes to that film. We gave him his props in the episode because I just watched Champagne Ill not too long ago, which is a show he's on. It's Sam Richardson and Adam Pally. It's on Hulu now. Check it out. Neil Casey's one of the main guys in it, and it's very funny. So where to next? What's the, t- I'm, I'm looking at the, the Gom Jabbar. What is that? A reference oh, Gom Jabbar. That's the name of the needle that oh, the Reverend Mother holds yeah. to his neck. What's in the box? Pain. 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 <laughs> I said that like there's a pain quote from the 80s action movie. It's Clever Lang. I said it like uh, Clever Lang from Rocky. Pain. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the Gamjabar scene. That's an iconic scene. Obviously, it sets the stage for what's possible in this universe. And really, a lot happens in this first third of the movie, like we talked about, that's pretty slow. And a lot of it was invented by the director, right? There's scenes, the breakfast, the walk amongst the tombstones with dad, like all that stuff was created to just do some character building work that wasn't really in the book. But then we get into, okay, this is heart of the book. Gamjabar, Paul's called in, the Reverend Mother puts his hand in a box and it's on. And this is where Chalamet, I thought, killed it. This is where I just fell in love with him in this movie. Big agree on that. It also had me fall in love with how they made something that I think on paper in the book does not seem cinematic, but they made it very cinematic, was the voice Mm -hmm. and how through editing and through shot selection, I really felt that they took it to a a new level on the screen versus how I felt about it reading it. And I loved that they gave the famous quote and speech to Paul's mother and made it into an almost prayer that she does. I don't know if that's what they meant. The litany against fear. Yes, exactly. The voice could have very easily been cheesy or just played straight, almost like the Jedi mind trick. But you're right. They made it very cinematic. And especially seeing it in the movie theater, every time they used the voice, the walls shook and you felt it in your bones. It was very exciting Um, and a little frightening, especially when the Reverend Mother does it. 
Because the only time you've heard it up to that point is when Paul does it at breakfast and he's a bit of a novice still. When the Reverend Mother, who's a master of it, the theater sound just went ballistic. Oh, <laughs> and wow. it was very wow. cool. And the way he zooms forward, it's giving you the indication that he has no control of his actions. Like he's teleporting because she tells him to do something. And the next yeah. thing he knows, he's already done it. So that was a very cool way to show it. It did the scene and some of the other scenes in the early part. I, I got off to a rough start with Lady Jessica. I thought Rebecca Ferguson's performance was like a little weepy in the early parts of this movie. And she doesn't, she seems to be a bystander to many of the, the big scenes, but then they redeem her in a big way in the second half. But I was having mixed feelings about her character in the early stages of the movie including this scene because she's just standing outside the door helpless and I know we're supposed to feel that but she's just helpless a little too often early in the movie. I had that complaint and that was my complaint with Lady Jessica in the Lynch movie because my memory of her from the book is just that she is such a badass. She's so heavily trained and she's not just a Bene Gesserit, what do they call them? Is she a reverend mother? Whatever she is. She's a highly trained Bene Gesserit and she's one of the best in the universe. She is literally the product of the thousand years of Bene Gesserit breeding to try to create this ultimate. I thought it's implied dude. that she's the Scotty Pippen of the Bene Jesserits, yeah. but not maybe the Michael Jordan of the Benny Jesserits. That goes to the Reverend Mother who does the scene with Paul. But no, I thought in the book it's implied that she's one of the best in the universe. Yes. Yeah, so she's a total badass. But the thing is, that aspect is not cinematic, right? Yeah. If all your characters are fully in control of their emotions at all times and all they do is stare stone-faced, like, how do we know what's going on in their heads? So I get it. You have to play some of those emotions more visibly. But yeah, I felt John too, like she walked a fine line where I'm like, oh, she's really breaking down. But I wanted to just barely see that breakdown crack through her armor. But in the end, I loved her. She's just a strong presence on screen. And I thought her relationship with Paul, the way it developed, was great. Yeah, it really pulls through in the end for me, but it, it was on shaky ground at first. Um, and then they get to Arrakis. We got to talk about those early scenes of them kind of exploring the planet. I thought the first sandworm encounter was excellent. And that subtle hint that maybe the Harkonnens had sabotaged their equipment and that's why they weren't able to lift the harvester out right. of the sand. And there was just a lot of narrative lifting going on in that scene while also being a special effects spectacle and just an exciting action scene and probably one of the first big action scenes we get in the movie. Did the people who left your screening see that or did they leave before? No, they were gone before they even landed on Arrakis. Yeah. They don't deserve that scene. They don't deserve it. <laughs> no. That's a great scene. And I loved how they showed that sometimes spice ingestion is not on purpose. That because of the gusting of it, that's why Paul has that trance and Gurney yeah. has to be like, come on, you're going to die. Got to get out of here. That. It's so much of the ecosystem that if you're just in either the right or the wrong place, however you want to see it, predetermined by your spatial place in Arrakis, you'll ingest spice and have to experience it. Secondhand spice. Secondhand spice, yeah. exactly. He got hotboxed. Yes. <laughs> he had nowhere to go, but it did drive home that this is a very powerful substance that can be useful and also terrifying spice ingestion of what it can do to a person. Yeah. I mean, to this guy in particular, he's very he's sensitive to it. Yeah. So he's the quitsots and it's giving him a hot rock. Did that pun work? No, yeah. I, no, that was, that was. I loved it. Well done. But fun note to show how much of a badass Paul still is. He's tripping balls on huffing the spice. And yet still he goes, I recognize your footsteps, old man. When Gurney's running up to save him, his training kicks in and he knows it's Gurney. Very solid callback to their first scene too. Love a callback. Love a solid yeah. callback. Speaking of callback, because you just mentioned the, how do you say it again? The Messiah name? The, the Quitzatz Haderach is the Bene Gesserit's name for their 
goal of their breeding program. And the Fremen version is? The Fremen, they use Lisan al-Gaib mostly, which is the voice from the other world, mm-hmm. which is the legend of someone coming from off-world to be their messiah. But he has another name that starts with M too, doesn't he? Mwadib, I thought. Mwadib is his personal name. That's the name okay. of the kangaroo mouse that you see. Oh, that's what I was trying to get to, because I love that little kangaroo mouse. So cute. Yeah, but it's <laughs> so he is Paul, that though he is alone and may feel weak in this environment, that if you're strategic, you can also use your metaphorical ears to absorb water. <laughs> I thought it was like he did, he did a little and then he just rubbed it on his face. Oh, man. Two more movies of that little creature. Yeah, he managed to be cute, but not in a cloying way like a porg from Star Wars no, was. Like, no, no. Right. He served He was not purpose. there to sell stuffed animals. He was there right. to serve a story purpose and not to just... I bet somewhere in Disney you can eat a cookie version of a porg, but there will oh, never... There's not going to be some <laughs> cookie version of that little kangaroo mouse. A little Mwadib cookies. I'm not promising anybody that I won't buy a stuffed animal of the Mwadib. I would buy that. Because they're pretty cute. And I got two kids, so I'd have an excuse built in already. Great excuse. Let's talk about the Harkonnen invasion of Arrakis. This scene was just fucking fantastic, right? Have explosions ever looked that cool on screen? No, because they were probably real explosions. (laughs) I don't think Villeneuve went the CGI route with a lot of the effects in this movie. I think where he could actually blow some shit up, he did. Huge, right? As Michael mentioned, scale is one of the big keywords of this movie and one of the reasons to see it in a theater because some of the wide shots are so wide that everything on screen is a tiny little ant and it gives you this incredible sense of the scale of the landing ground and the spaceships and all this stuff. But when those things start blowing up, those explosions were like, I haven't seen a fireball that felt that tall and big Mm -hmm. and real. So cool. And it's a nice juxtaposition between these big aerial battles with these huge explosions, but then mostly blade-based combat on the ground, which is not Uh something we see a lot of anymore. It's usually CGI armies crashing into each other and it looks like a fucking video game. But he got right down on the ground and filmed these conflicts from a very low vantage point, And it really made you feel like you were in the middle of it. And blade combat is just so much more visceral, I think. So it really felt life or death because it was. Maybe this was for the best, <laughs> but they didn't get into the backstory of why they have to use blade hand-to-hand combat. Because right. if they use laser guns with the shields, it will create an apocalyptic explosion. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't explain that. They didn't explain the lack of computers. It's probably for the best. Right. I don't, I don't know that they'll even have time to get into it in part two. It's mostly background world building stuff. I think um, the Mentat reasoning is a backstory that they should probably hit because it brings up other things when it comes to the relationship of the Harkonnen and Lady Jessica. It just really builds that, oh, it's this futuristic world without artificial intelligence and without computers, which is such a trope that we see in so many stories about the future. And this is the one that completely removes that from possibility. Right. Yeah, it's neat. And, and the reason is a good reason. There was some kind of uprising Terminator, of baby. I wonder, though, there there is a prequel series for HBO Max Ooh. in development about uh, the Benny Gesserit specifically, and I think Lady oh. Jessica. So I wonder how much of the world-building background information they'll relegate to that series, because Villeneuve is an executive producer on it, so it's not like it's happening. The Many Saints of Dune. The Many Saints. <laughs> it's called Sister of Dune. So they might try to use that to fill in some blanks. But I do agree because the lack of some of that more advanced computer technology is jarring. So it would make sense to at least have a couple minutes, have Paul watch a little projector movie. It worked so far. I'm just saying in that prequel show, one of the Benny Jesserits better say Gabagool at least once or I'm not watching <laughs> that shit. 
Jobber ghoul, like yeah, Jabber ghoul. There, there you go. <laughs> now we, we solved come it. Come full circle. Speaking of the big Harkonnen's attack, there's giant explosions going on outside, but there's this really awesome personal drama going on inside. Dr. Yui betrays the family that you thought he was loyal to. And some of those moments are, they're so loaded with drama, but they're also so beautifully shot. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie was Yui sneaks into the generator room. And first we see the guards look at the camera, your point of view from Yui, and he tranquilizes the three of them. And then a minute later, as the power is all shutting down, a silhouette of Yui steps into that doorway. And I just got chills. There's a lot of really great cinematography in the shots in this movie. And that was one of my favorites. That actor was wonderful in that role too. I don't know his name off the top of my head, but just brought such a sensitivity to the role and such a profound hurt. The line, they tore her apart like a doll when talking about his wife. And then it terrifies me. I didn't think of this. This actually came from a great YouTube breakdown by a new rock stars on YouTube. Remember Mm. the Harkonnen's little spider creature? Yes. What if that's his wife? And we, oh no, we find that out in oh, part my. two because he said they <laughs> tore her apart horrible. like a doll. Does that mean they died? Is it something worse that the Harkonnen did? That's that thing that's was very gross. upsetting. Yeah, yeah, that was so. They never explained what that but... little spider creature is. No, and it had a ass. No, it had human hand. It had human hand. It had human hands for legs, but it had butt cheeks tightly wrapped in shiny latex bodysuit. It was gross. That's like some Cronenberg <laughs> shit right there. I think there's going to be a horrific body horror reveal. In yeah. Oh, oh I hope that's not his wife. That's so hurtful. But that was the actor was Chang Chen. And that whole sequence, oh. uh, I wish we got more time with Dr. Yui, but you don't even blame him, really, when you see what he's up against. It's it's really understandable why he, why he would betray the Atreides family in that circumstance. As much as you want to hate him, like he's far from a mustache twirling villain. He's very sympathetic. They just broke him. And speaking of his performance, he gives another really... Really great, subtle, but awesome moment. After that, he's being marched into uh, audience with the Baron amongst the uh, Harkonnen soldiers. And as he walks down that hallway, he fixes his hair. And it just conveys so much of him trying to like pull himself together after having done this awful, awful thing that he immediately is so sorrowful for, but is hoping that it'll end his torture. And it's just this very small thing he does of just brush his hair back off his forehead. And I was like, whoa, it's such just a human moment for the guy. He also, like with the Mentats, with the t- tattoo or the marking on the lip. Didn't they also have a marking for doctors? He has that diamond on his forehead. Yeah. And that's the Souk school emblem. In Game of Thrones, they don't call them doctors. What do they call them? Maesters? Maesters. The chain. So instead they get the Mm -hmm. little... I just thought that was a really interesting way to visually tell audience members without it being too much. Like, this is the doctor society. This is the mentat society. It's great. And yeah, Villeneuve handled all these things very subtly to the point where that's where I wonder, are other people getting this? But apparently he gave people just enough, even if you haven't read the books, to connect Well, the, the thing is, they call him Dr. Yui. So even if you don't take note of the diamond marking, you still understand who he is yes. and what his role is. It's There's a deeper, more rewarding experience beneath the surface if you're willing to dig into it, but you don't need it to understand what's going on. And I that's think that's true. the difference between making a movie that people can understand, but also has more depth. And then I don't want to keep comparing it to the Lynch movie, but it's unavoidable. He was an all or nothing movie. Like you either get everything that's happening or nothing at all. And <laughs> Villeneuve has given you the opportunity to watch this movie on a surface level and still enjoy it and be able to follow it. 
but also go deeper if you want to, but you certainly don't have to. Villeneuve is just a director that puts so much attention to detail into scenes. I heard him do a thing where he breaks down the Gam Jabbar scene, and there was just like thought behind every shot, the way every piece of action and motivation was handled. It's, there's a lot to discover in this movie. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more rewatches to dig out more. Absolutely. If there was a section of the movie that didn't work for me as well, it was this section immediately after the uh, attack from the Harkonnens where it's Lady Jessica and Paul in uh, Ornithopter. Mm-hmm. Right? It looked like a dragonfly. Yeah. The little dragonfly in the sandstorm for like 20 minutes. And then they're camping for like 40 minutes. And I just feel like some of that could have been condensed to speed the movie up because I did feel like it dragged a little bit during this section. It also seemed that their escape, maybe when the book came out, dealing with empty-headed guards wasn't as tropey as we're used to now, but the scene where they just tricked two nameless guards, I don't know, unless they wrote it in like they did with some of the other scenes, but that one I think could have been tweaked or something. It just, I don't know, it just felt felt like one of the Looney Tunes with, ah, see, you know what I mean? Just where they just like tricked some (laughs) some dunder-headed, big, bulky guard to get out of the situation, and it was just as simple as, these are not the droids you're looking for kind of situation Mm -hmm. where All she has to do is use her magical voice powers. That is a book scene. And I think it suffers from like a lot of what John Carter suffered from, which (laughs) is that it seems tropey now and maybe it invented the trope, but then so many other things have done it since that it's hard to go back to that well again with fresh eyes. What I noticed was different from the book is that in the book, the voice is not always that sort of quick barked commands that are immediately obeyed. Sometimes it's subtle suggestions. So in that scene, Jessica, I think her literal quote, once she gets her gag off and the co-pilots are up in front, she's like, I wouldn't want you guys to fight over me. And within that, she codes the idea that they need to fight over her and a fight to the death to, to get her. But she's using reverse psychology and Instead of in this for the cinematic version, she's just like, kill, kill him. That's probably a harder, a harder concept to convey cinematically without devoting a lot more time to it. So I understand the need to shorten that. Yeah. But yeah. I agree. That's like a very tropey scene at this point in, in cinema. And again, probably could have been shortened, but you had to get him out into the desert. I guess that's what my main issue with this whole sequence is, is that it just feels like you're putting them there, not because anything interesting is going to happen, because you need them there. So that the next interesting thing can happen is just moving the pieces around. And that's all necessary, but you want to get through it as fast as possible to get to the next cool thing. I have an idea about what's going on there. There's some action that happens in that tent. They spend a night in the tent and it's awkward. But I think that there's actually some plot that's moving forward that's not so obvious, right? Paul has these visions. It's a kind of a big turning point, but it's also very subtle. All the vision stuff is very subtle because he decided to just have it weave in and out. There's no like obvious heavy-handed dream sequence. We're doing the Wayne's World hands, folks. Yeah, there's no Wayne's World action. So it flips in and out. And Chalamet is also trying to play it subtle. I heard him talk in an interview about trying to strike the right balance between guy who's wigging out on dreams and guy who has some of his sanity left. Because he's really reckoning with his future there. But it's told so subtly, there's just some images. Then he ends up in the tent repeating, there's a holy war coming and they're shouting my name. But that stuff does feel static because it's all happening while they're sitting in a little tent. So uh, that's one of those where the director is really making you do more work to make it feel like the story's moving forward when they're sitting still. Yeah. And I, I was able to follow what the whole point of that scene was. I think I just wish it could have been achieved faster because yeah. by the end of it, 
you never want to be looking at your clock. But I was starting to by the time they finally left the tent. And then the next cool thing is when they come upon the Fremen, right? I'm trying to think Mm -hmm. if there's anything in between that. In between that, Duncan rescues the two of them and takes them to the the way station with Kynes. They have the scene against the uh, the Emperor's swordsman. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of the great shots in the movie is the set of Fremen are outside making their saliva coffee for each other in that big chamber of the abandoned ecological way station and they're sitting in this big atrium and then the sardaukar sneak up and they start floating down from the top i got chills that was just so such an awesome looking shot or the introduction of those soldiers with the throat singing and oh yeah people who were upside down and they were draining their blood for some ritual i don't know if there's a backstory somewhere in that but that was terrifying that's a big army think of how much blood they need to do ritual for all those soldiers yeah a lot of guys Next lined up. Yeah. Appropriately terrified. What's their motivation? <laughs> Are they forced to be those soldiers? Or what's the motivation to be the emperor's just honor? Or how does that is there any explanation in the books about that? They call it a prison planet. Which one is this? Are from Seleucus Secundus Got is it. the emperor's prison planet, and that's where his troops come from. But if they're prisoners, does that mean they were sent from all over the galaxy? And then they're not only forced to do time, but become trained as the galaxies. But I thought it was also to, implied that they're supposed to be not just the army of the universe, but the ultimate warriors of the universe, right? Oh yeah, they're badass. Yeah. They're like the Spartans of the right. world. <laughs> yeah, the best of the best. And they're, yeah, not just brute force soldiers, but there's all this cool detail in the book about if you capture one, you have to body search him for an hour because he's going to have a uh, garrote wire concealed in his hair and he's going to have other weapons up his butt. And it just like- and when you kill them, through- they'll kill you because you killed them. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Sign just- capsules in the teeth and all that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're just like, they're not just big brutes. They're like also super agents like and ninjas right. and all that Cunning. wrapped together. They demonstrated that pretty well with, like you said, their descent into the ecological station was very ninja-like and yeah. they're appropriately- stealthy but also deadly uh very cool army excited to see more of them yeah but then yeah they meet up with stillgar's gang and that's where the movie kind of wraps up with this pretty tragic fight to the death you've seen the visions of paul going off with is it Jameis? yeah Jamis or Jameis? Jamis. yeah and through your visions you've grown to like this character but you know something tragic is going to happen when they meet because paul's visions are of him dying sometimes so his visions are not literal obviously but They fight to the death. Paul wins. He's welcome into the Fremen. And that's where the movie leaves us off. The cool drama of the fight, which they've managed to preserve, is where Jamis becomes totally infuriated because he thinks Paul is fucking with him. Their rules are, as soon as you get the advantage, you kill your opponent quickly and you're done with. And Paul is like, do you yield? And he's so mad after that. And that actor, I don't know his name. I don't know him from other things. His name is Babs Alusamokun. Fantastic actor. That's a character, Jamis, who is just one of those over-the-top, really angry men who's a valuable soldier to Stilgar but also has an anger issue and this guy just plays him with this intensity that's electric I loved him on screen yes very good portrayal you get all that just from the little time he has on screen he's Uh quick to anger he's very bound by ceremony and and honor and then yeah when he's just like screaming in Paul's face after he asked him to yield (laughs) it's frightening mad it's cool yeah it's so dramatic but it's so good (laughs) that could be a scene in a performance that veer into camp if you're not careful, but he doesn't. He plays it very well. Is that character supposed to know who Paul is? That he has? No, I don't believe so. Yeah, because and I thought his performance was also really well done. It's just that that he played it as, oh, you're just some child. I'm going to absolutely destroy you. Not 
you're a prince who's been trained by the world's best fighters every day since you could walk. Yeah, he missed that part. Because Paul wrecks him, right? Paul's not... It's not even a question. Yeah, yeah. He's, Paul's yeah. not in any danger at any point, as far as you can tell. Yeah. Even Lady Jessica takes Stilgar out with very little resistance. So yeah, the Atreides are far beyond any of the Fremen as far as we see. It's fun how much of this book, and I realized it in watching the movie, it's got all this heady political stuff and ecology and intellectual stuff. But a lot of the fun stuff for me as a kid reading it that still sticks with me is like superhero stuff and which guy is better than which other guy, right? And it's all all this dick measuring between these fighters are a little bit better than these fighters, but these guys are about to get better. And then this kid is really good. And then the Benny Jesuit are good because of this. And it's just, there's a bunch of just satisfying genre childish macho shit that you get to see people face off and their various skills. It's also the class, oh, the Benny Jesuits don't have super strength or fighting, but they have all their brain powers. And then these people have this special ability, but not this special ability. Very right. Pokemon, very, what fighter type <laughs> is the best to go against the Benny Jesuits, but what fighter type is best against the Harkonnen? I'm ashamed to admit how much time I spent on a Song of Ice and Fire message boards talking about, well, could Arthur Dane beat Jamie Lannister in his prime? And so, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally understand that draw when you're reading a book as a teenager or a young adult, the battle between these two forces and who's better and which individual fighter is better and could Duncan Idaho take out Stilgar if they had to fight. Let's just get to the real yeah. crux of this. Who would win in a race around the world, The Flash or Superman? <laughs> right now, no preamble, no qualifiers, just The Flash or Superman. Let's go. Superman. Superman, thank you. S- Superman, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's got to be Superman. Yeah. Anyone who says The Flash yeah, is not to be trusted. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the movie literally ends with the line, this is only the beginning. So <laughs> yeah. wink, wink. I, I, I laughed at that a little bit. I had to say that got a little corny. Yeah. The fucking balls of Villeneuve to put that in as the final line when he hadn't had a part two greenlit. You got to respect it, right? He, he was really shooting for the moon with that one. Yeah, this, even if you're not thinking of the sequel, it's fucking two and a half hours since the beginning of this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you saying here? Yeah, it's a little anticlimactic, but it was very refreshing to have this movie really end with a knife fight between two dudes after every big budget movie of the past like 10 years, it seems like ends with some blue sky beam and a big spectacle between armies. It was just like a very low key, melancholy ending that I, I really dug. It reminded me of the ending of Empire strikes back where it ends with them technically losing what do you mean his house his father all their military capabilities in the peaks and valleys they're in a deep emotional and story and strategic valley not good at the end of that movie but i thought that was very rewarding as an audience member yeah it's confident too it's confident filmmaking you would not see that from somebody who was concerned about whether the audience would follow him back for part two after this yeah, it didn't, end, it didn't end with him bringing about a rainstorm that, <laughs> that saves Arrakis to the tune of Toto music. <laughs> Thank goodness. Although there was a nod. Paul says uh, at one point, he's like, if I was emperor, I could bring water to Arrakis with a wave of my hand. And I was like, wait, watch out. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't I actually do it. That. That. Yeah. So that wraps up the movie, I think. Was there any closing thoughts you guys wanted to throw in before we sign off? Oh, we have to talk about Zendaya and how they... Pre- and, and, this and how is, she's no- Michi. Yeah, she's obviously incredible, nothing against Zendaya, but in the marketing for this movie, they make it seem like she's a co-star of this film, and I believe her screen time is less than 10 minutes. It's nine minutes, I think, counting all the dream sequences. And and I actually like that we should exist in a world where 
market presence should not immediately define the presence of the character in the movie. If anything, that was a nice rug pulled under me being like, oh, this is very subtle how they're using Chani as a character. And obviously because in the next one, she'll be a predominant character. But yeah, sure. I was expecting way more of her in the movie. Yeah, I think that, that's been, I wouldn't say a criticism, but a I don't, point I don't think it is, or at least up. not for me. Right. It does something important. Marketing her so heavily lets you know that, hey, she's going to be important even if she doesn't seem important yet. And also at the end of the day, they're trying to get people into the theater and she's got you know, such a, a huge fan base from all her other projects. It makes sense to really laser focus in on her and the marketing. But yeah, I can understand why some people were surprised by her role being so minimal. But then that makes the scene where they do meet feel a little more important. You're like, oh, this is something special happening here because we've seen glimpses of this person. We don't really know what her deal is. Yeah, it leaves you with a lot of anticipation. I can't wait to see her in more action. In a two. lot of anticipation. Ooh, see nice. what I did there? Yeah. I had rocky, to wait for that. Little Rocky Horror callback. Yeah, so I am very excited for part two. Yeah, and are we coming back? Are we going to hang in there? Is it oh, going to oh, be around? Have to. Of course, I'm seeing that. Okay. 2023, we're going to have Michael back once again. I would love to be talk, back sooner. Part pick, two. pick a movie. Oh yeah, we don't have to wait for them to have you back on the Please show, but you're definitely going <laughs> to come true. back for part two of Dune. I need things to so. do. All I've been doing is unpacking boxes, trying to decide where to put all my nickety knacks. And you got to hang the bullheads on the wall and the picture of uh, the old. That Duke. wasn't in the book, was it? Yeah, it was. Grandf- oh, it was his grandfather was a bullfighter? His grandfather was a bullfighter. That bull, the horns actually still have the blood crusted on it because it's the actual bull that killed the grandfather. Whoa. El Matador, I believe his name was in the book. That's not true. I made that up. <laughs> that was a good. Said it confidently. Yeah, that's did. what really matters. Well, we have podcasted without rhythm and now find ourselves <laughs> at an awkward ending. But thank you everyone so much for listening. Go check out Dune. We, we think it's really good. And we'll be back Wednesday with a regularly scheduled episode. Michael, do you have something that you wanted to plug? Yeah, plug some socials or some projects oh, you're working on. Man, you can find me at I am Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum is spelled not like the Wes Anderson movie, The Royal Tannenbaums. Mine is T-A-N-N-E-N. B-A-U-M. But I will say, thank God that was a good movie that he made or my life would be hell. That would be so <laughs> yeah. horrible. One, one of the better Wes Andersons, I would say. They're all perfect. So follow you on Twitter, Instagram, any other socials? On Instagram, it's just my name, Michael Tannenbaum. And okay. man, hire me for all your writing and acting things in the Los Angeles area so I can eat, baby. Yes. I'm a joy to work with. I'm on time and I don't take up a lot of space. I'm pretty short vouch hashtag short kings hashtag short kings no one has ever said a bad word about michael in my presence because they know better that's nice follow michael follow the pod tune in follow us on twitter at blast zone pod you can email us any questions comments suggestions blast zone pod at gmail.com and just stay tuned we got a lot of fun stuff coming up thanks again for having me thanks for coming on michael great to talk to you thank you michael and we'll see everyone next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone the blast zone